Well, if um, you're like me, you probably heard the line in that second song that we sang, or the first two songs ago. And it says, as summer flowers, we fade and die. And that's such a great reminder of who we are and where we are. And as I look down, I see my, the face of my friend, Big Dan T. Right here, someone left uh, this up here to remind me, or whoever's here, that I'm speaking as a dying man to dying men. And the only thing I can offer is here. Is here. And like we sang in that last song, I will trust my Savior completely. And so let me turn to the Lord in prayer because I need strength, I need help as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, you have brought us here this morning to hear your word. We pray here this morning that you will strengthen me for I am frail and weak. We pray that I will not get in the way of your word, that your word will sound forth, that you will be glorified, that we will make much of your son, and that you will instruct us, that you will encourage us, that you will build us up, that you will help us to see your glory and the glory of your son, and that you have given us a task and a commission here on this earth. And it's not because of who we are or what we've done, but it's all because of who you are and what your son has done. Help us to remember our place this morning before you and your great mercy. Amen. Well, it's going to be a rough one for me, I think. (laughs) But if you turn to the book of Samuel, chapter 10, I will try to compose myself. First Samuel chapter 10, I'll just read the passage and I'll give us a little bit of context as to where we are and where we have been and, and where we are going. First Samuel chapter 10, we're going to start in the middle of the passage. Uh, and the passage begins like this. Verse 17, First Samuel chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, 
He has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all of the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent away all the people, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present. But he held his peace. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there was no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming up from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these things, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all of the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man, and he mustered them at Bezek. And the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings to the Lord, and there Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. While the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Well, as we... Uh, begin to think about what this passage means for us this morning. We're going to see an illustration of how God's love um, is displayed for his chosen people. His chosen people were quick to forsake their God, but God did not forsake his people. And in response to their faithlessness, the Lord raised up an, an anointed one to rescue and to save his people, to bring them back into faithfulness. 
Those called by God are often prone to wander. But God is faithful, and he is faithfully protecting and effectively protecting his people for his name's sake. The goodness of God is on display through his anointed one, bringing about repentance and reconciliation. And that's what this passage is, I believe, about. The goodness of God is displayed through his anointed one, bringing about repentance and reconciliation. Well, as we think of the immediate context, let me just remind you of of where this passage falls. Remember, Samuel, the prophet of Israel, is getting old, and his sons do not walk in his ways. The people then see this, and they demand that God give them a king, someone to rule over them, someone to reign over them. They reason that if they had a king and a, a strong military presence in the land, they wouldn't have to obey the covenant rules of God. And therefore, their, their demand for a king is a rejection of God and his covenant. Samuel heard their request, and Samuel took it to the Lord. This is back in chapter 8. And Samuel then sent all of the people to their homes. Then the Lord, as you remember the last time, the Lord sent Samuel to secretly anoint Saul, to anoint him king over Israel. And remember, Saul was given a, a series of signs that he was to follow to confirm his calling of the Lord. And at the end of the, the, the calling, or at the end of the signs, he was supposed to do whatever his hands found to do. And there was, of course, a Philistine garrison that was nearby, and that was, he was supposed to attack the garrison and then go to Gilgal. Well, Saul did not follow, he didn't obey what Samuel told him to do. And so this morning, now we have, the people have made a request for the king, the Saul, uh, Saul has been secretly anointed, yet not publicly proclaimed. And then Samuel has sent all of the people home. And so the people this morning are waiting to hear a response from God. Will he give them a king? And as we look at our passage this morning, I've divided up into two sections. The first section deals with chapter 10, and it's the Lord's anointed is to be chosen by the Lord. And then the second section we'll look at in chapter 11, the Lord's anointed is to be empowered by the Lord. And so let's look at this first section. The Lord's anointed is to be chosen by the Lord. And in verses 17 through 19, we have this gathering together. Our passage begins with the gathering in verses 17 through 19. Samuel calls the people together for an assembly at Mitzvah. Now, if you're anything like me, you might struggle to remember uh, all of the biblical names and the layers of history associated with these cities and these towns. But as we read this morning, Mitzpah was a place where the 11 tribes gathered together to begin the civil war that, that Ben read the, um, the, the ending of. And remember, the civil war was to eradicate the tribe of, of Benjamin. Remember, if, if you go back to Judges chapter 19, after the murder of the Levite's concubine, all of Israel rallied against the town of Gibeah. They gathered together at Mitzpah to begin this. Because the town of Gibeah was in the territory of Benjamin, the Benjamites came together and and to defend the people of Gibeah. And Mitzpah became the rallying place for the tribes. And there they marched into battle against the tribe of Benjamin. Not only that, but in in chapter 7, Mitzpah was also the place where the Lord had miraculously defeated the Philistines. 
The people of Israel, remember, in Mitzvah set up a stone of remembrance, their Ebenezer stone. And as we remember those two incidents, those should be fresh in our mind as we think about what happens here with this gathering. Now, the narrator doesn't tell us that why Saul called this gathering, and people might assume that it was to elect a king. But as they gather together, as the people to gather together, Samuel's message takes the form of a prophetic judgment. Notice what he says. He starts off the message with a warning. Samuel identifies that this message is from the Lord. The covenant, and when I'm referring to the Lord, it's all caps. Remember, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the Lord reminds the people that, first of all, he brought them up out of Egypt. And this introduction reminds the people of all the way back in Exodus 20, when Moses is given the Ten Commandments. As a preface to the Ten Commandments, God reminds them, I brought you out of Egypt, therefore, Ten Commandments. And and so this introduction will be clear in the minds of these, these listeners, They're reminded that that to keep the law, there there, there were blessings, and to disobey the law, there would be the curses of the law. Then the Lord reminds them of his covenant faithfulness in delivering them and protecting them from their enemies. Brought you out of Egypt, I protected you, I took care of you, I gave you a land. And the word but in verse 19 reminds them that they have rejected him by forsaking the covenant. Though their desire for the king was not wrong, in fact, we've talked about that a few times, in Deuteronomy, God tells them how to go about or what to do when it's time for a king. But their desire in this instance was a desire to replace God with someone else. And so their desire for a king was a rejection of God and his covenant. And they were offering a substitution of an earthly king instead. When the character and acts of the Lord laid out in contrast their sinful covenant-breaking desires, the Lord then, in verse 20, tells them to stand before him. In verse 20. And as they are, um, then, then they're all brought together, and then they begin this thing called, in verses 20 through 24, they begin this selection process. And here in this selection process, Samuel brings the tribes together. He casts lots for them to see which tribe should be selected. Now, Samuel hasn't really said why he's called the people together, and we, we might assume that they're assuming that a king is to be named, but also he just read them, this is God's law, this is what God has done, this is how you've broken God's law, now stand before the Lord. And they begin to cast lots. But before we go further, we need to take a moment and make sure we make this clear connection between how God is going to choose this king. Now, you young people out there, you probably would recognize a selection process where God uses the casting of lots to identify someone who took something that didn't belong to them and then hid it under his tent. Right? And if you remember all the way back to Joshua chapter 7, the Lord spoke to Joshua. And you remember, and, and the, as the Lord spoke to Joshua, what had happened was as the people had, had destroyed the city of Jericho, one man took something that didn't belong to him. The whole city was to be devoted to the Lord. 
And yet he took something, he took some things, hid him under his tent, assuming that nobody would notice. But then as Israel goes on to the next city, they're resoundly defeated. And so Joshua goes to the Lord, and the Lord identifies, he says, call everyone before me, and they begin this process. The Lord spoke to Joshua. He told him, hey, cast lots to find people. Notice what happens. If you want to turn to Joshua 7, you can. I'm just going to paraphrase as we go through, because I want you to see this connection. So Joshua arose early in the morning and he used lots. He brought the tribes together, selected the tribe of Judah. And then the selection process went narrow, 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 finally down to one man named Achan. And in verse 19 of chapter 7 of Joshua, Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to God and give praise to him and tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. So if you'll notice, they were all gathered together. One man was selected, give glory to God. And then, jo- and then Achan responds, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And he unfolds then what he did. In verse 25, God, Joshua says, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel then gathered together and stoned him with stones. And they, ro- they raised a great heap over, of stones over him. And it remains to this day. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. This scene is a graphic illustration of how God is uh, serious, how serious it is to break God's commandments by taking that which belongs to God and God alone. And here in this scene, as everyone has been gathered together, this selection process begins again. Now, uh, as this selection process began, it probably took time. They had to bring the tribes together. They had to decide which one is which. And so people had a lot of time to think and, and to mill about and wonder, what's going on here? And in verse 21, Benjamin was taken. And then finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And... Maybe surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, by the time they narrowed it all the way down to Saul, no one could find him. He was nowhere to be found. And because no one could find him, they didn't know if he was like on his way, or if he hadn't quite got there yet, or if he was in transit. They went to the Lord to inquire of the Lord. They asked the Lord, where is Saul? And I love how the King James Version renders verse 22. It says, therefore they inquired of the Lord, if the man should come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, the man hath hid himself among the stuff. And so this man, they're wondering if he's coming thither, and he's actually hither, right? And so he is gone. He is, as, as you remember, all of these people traveled to this place. All of their baggage, all of their carts, all of their stuff would have been probably circled around as a kind of a defensive mechanism to make sure that if they were attacked, they could defend themselves. And Saul is hiding among the stuff. And, and you might, and they, they, of course, they sent messengers. They're like, go get this guy. And they went and found him, and they brought him out right away. And you might wonder, why was he hiding? Why wouldn't you want to be king? He already knows he's going to be king. He already seems to like, understand that he's going to be the one selected. So why wouldn't he just accept this honor? Now, some, some might say, well, he was hiding because he was just a modest guy. He's like, he's just a humble guy. He doesn't really want to be called out. That might be it. Um, 
I don't know, if I were to speculate, I might say this. I think he was motivated to hide. I think he understood the magnitude of what was about to happen. The context of the place. He recognized that he was in a place where severe judgment had been pronounced on his tribe. Right? He, he recognized that the means of selection was God's process to select someone who was guilty and ready for punishment. And then, of course, he recognized the judgment that the nation was under for rejecting God's covenants. And he knew that they deserved the consequences of that covenant breaking. And then, of course, in his mind, he knew that he was most likely to be the one who was singled out for whatever consequence was to come. And so, Abraham, I probably would have hidden amongst the stuff as well. But when he's found, Samuel brings Saul to center stage of Israel's history, and he affirms that this was the Lord, the the covenant God of Israel, who chose this man here to be king. He also notes without irony that Saul is without parallel amongst all of the people of Israel. He's taller than everybody else. And if you remember all the way back into chapter 8, he is the most handsome of the entire country. It's his eternal, external physique that qualifies him to rule in the eyes of these people. Now, if you remember, their request for a king was motivated by a desire to maintain their place in the land through military conquest. They needed a big, strong leader to guide them and lead them in war. And as the people were gathered together, they looked and they saw, they're like, this is the guy. This is the biggest, strongest guy. He will definitely be really good at delivering us. And so they, they affirmed the Lord's choice, spontaneously, and with the hearty shout of, long live the king. One of the great and sad ironies of this election, and we won't see the fruits of this until chapters on, but it, the great irony is this, is that Saul was right to worry about his selection as the king. And though he might have been expecting the judgment to come down upon him, it turns out that, that he was the judgment to come down upon the nation. But as we think about that, that's, that's still to come, and we'll get to that in the future, so... Two years from now, there will be. But anyway, as we look at the next section, we talk about the guidelines. And in verses 25 through 27, we see the guidelines. Because God has, he has chosen this anointed one. He's elected him, and now he's going to give him the rules whereby to lead his people. And God's public, private choice has now been made public, and it's also been affirmed by the people Samuel then outlines the rights and the duties of the king. He wants the king to know. He wants the people to know. They all need to be clear about what God expects from his anointed one. He wants them to know how he is to rule, how he as king is to behave. And and Saul writes it down. And this will serve as a testimony in the future, should anything go awry. Not only this, but Deuteronomy 17 also describes what the king is to do. Notice 
If you turn to Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it says this, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is the king, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the, by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up among, among, above his brothers, and that he might not turn aside from the, from the commandments, either to the right hand or the, to the left hand, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What a wonderful promise to those who would listen to God's rule and obey his statutes. And as the, these things are unfolded for the people to hear, for Saul to write down, and, and the, the testimony, the written portion is kept for that day in the future, then almost just as abruptly as they gathered, Samuel sends everyone back to their home. Though one might think that Saul might start plans for his elaborate palace, he too heads back home and he continues working as a farmer. But as Israel is presented with the king, we see that the presence of the Lord's anointed quickly reveals the hearts of the people around him. There are those hearts who were touched by God, who quickly and wholeheartedly embraced their, and supported their new king. In contrast, we also see at the end of this chapter, there are those worthless men as well. This is the same word, word used in, in Samuel chapter 2 for Eli's sons. And these men questioned God's ability to save his people through this anointed one. And as this now publicly affirmed king hears these worthless men uh, besmirch his reputation for the sake of peace and for the sake of the kingdom, Saul begins his reign with his first kingly act of ignoring their comments, letting it slide. And we see now, and as we saw that the Lord's anointed is to be chosen by the Lord, in the next scene, we're going to see that the Lord's anointed is to be empowered by the Lord. If we look in uh, verses 1 through 4, they all of a sudden get a report. This is about a month later, and there's a report. So as Saul has been publicly confirmed, now there's an opportunity to potentially answer this question. How can that man save us? Verses 1 through 4, you can see that all of a sudden, Nahash, the Ammonite, shows up. He's besieging a city. And this situation has been unfolding east of Israel, and it's going to give Saul an opportunity to prove that he is, in fact, king material. As a part of the conquest of the Promised Land, you remember that there were territories on both sides of the Jordan River. There were three tribes who were, had, had land on the east side, and then the rest of the tribes were on the west side. And the Ammonite king, Nahash, was, was powerful on the, on, the, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, and he began to attack the different cities. And the Ammonite king had such a powerful position in the city that those people, as he surrounds the city with these men in Jabesh Gilead, um, he has such a powerful position that the men in the city say, you know what? We can't handle this. We need to make a treaty with, with this guy. We'll be his slaves. 
And the language used here implies that, that, he would, that the men of the city would want to cut a covenant that would make Jabesh Gilead a vassal city of Ammon. Nahash would be a, the, the feudal lord, and he would promise to treat them well, protect them in exchange for their goods and services. So instead of certain death, which is what these men thought was going to happen to them, they're like, you know what, we'll just make a treaty with this guy, and we'll, we'll just be ashamed, and we'll have to serve him for the rest of our lives. Well, Nahash, as you can see in the, in the passage, Nahash was so confident in his position that he said, you know what, I'll, I'll make a treaty with you. However, there's a condition. It's this. You have to gouge out your right eye as part of the terms. Well, in addition to the barbaric nature of this, Nahash's demand held a dual purpose. And it would keep those men in the city from being able to fight against him again. And, at the same time, allow them to be productive farmers. Good vassals for his feudal state. And the second thing that Nahash wanted to do, and this was his intent, was it would, it would bring disgrace upon all of Israel. Now, if you look at verses 3, the, the elders of the city in their desperation ask, they said, give us seven days. Let us, let us send messengers throughout the country. And if anyone comes to, and if anyone's willing to come fight for us, then, we'll, then we won't give up. But if no one wants to help us out, we'll, we'll surrender to your terms. And because, because Nahash believed that this granting would, this request would only work in his benefit, he agreed. He allowed them to send messengers throughout the land to spread the news of his power. It's when the news reaches Gibeah of Saul and that the people wept aloud. This is verse 4. And as we think back to, well, this is quite a reaction, and I want to make sure that we understand the connection between what's going on here in Gibeah, where Saul is from, and Jabesh Gilead. And as we think back to over the last six weeks or so in church, in our public reading, we've gone through the Judges 19 through 21. And some of you are glad that's over. I'll refer to a few more times because it's, it's important to understand what's going on there in our, for our passage. But in, that, in, that, in those events of Judges 19 through 21, there's a connection that's formed between the city of Gibeah and the city of Jabesh Gilead. And if you remember, back when the assembly was called at Mitzpah, there was only one city that didn't send men to Mitzpah to fight against Gibeah. And that was Jabesh Gilead. For whatever reason, Jabesh Gilead refused to fight. They didn't fight against Gibeah. They didn't fight against Benjamin. They remained non-participants. And as we read this morning, they paid a heavy price for their neutrality. As a response to their refusal to participate, you remember from what Ben read this morning, the main Israelite army sent a heavily armed force of 12,000 men up to destroy the city. And as they destroyed the city, they captured young women from the city to become wives of those who survived from Benjamin and Gibeah. And those 400 men, or excuse me, those 400 women who were captured would have been transported to Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin would have been transported to Gibeah. And the people of Gibeah would have married those women. And so when the, the news comes that Jabesh Gilead is under siege, these are their direct relatives. 
And so that's why all of the anguish and loud crying. And so in verses 5 through 11, we have the response of the king. In verse 5, we see that Saul was finishing work in the field with his oxen, and as he comes to the city, he sees that the people are distraught. Reminiscent of Eli having to ask for the news, Saul has to ask, why is everyone upset? Why is everyone weeping? What's going on? And the narrator succinctly summarizes the news to Saul. So they told him of the news of the men of Jabesh Gilead. And as he hears the news, Saul is then, uh, it says that in verse 5, that the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. And of course, this is the same phrase that was used to describe what happened to Saul after his anointing in chapter 10. And there Saul was told that, he would, that when he came to a high place, he was to do all that his hand would find. And if you remember, this was to imply that he was to attack a, a Philistine garrison. And then following this kingly act, he was to go to Gilgal. And, but when we look back at chapter 10, those things didn't happen. But this time is different. In verse 7, it says that Saul took the oxen that he had been plowing with, and he cut them into pieces, and and he sent these chunks of animal throughout the territory, making the people an offer they could not refuse. The hunk of oxen that came with the warning was not, if those who did not gather with him, they would have their animals cut into pieces. This kingly act of coercion had a desired effect on the people. And the dread of the Lord fell upon them. And the overwhelming response is seen as the men of Israel gather at Bezek, where a large army assembles for battle. Now, before we go on, we just need to go back and and make a connection again to to Judges chapter 19. And and after hearing about the men in Jabesh, Saul is empowered by the Spirit of God, and he cuts up the oxen, sends them all throughout the territory. In the same way, if you remember back in, in Judges 19, the Levite, remember he dismembers his murdered wife, and he sends her throughout the territory as a testimony of the evil men of Gibeah. And throughout the book of Judges, there's this constant refrain that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as the people gathered after receiving this awful package, the, the Levite, the husband of the woman, explains the events that led to his wife's death. And then the people were united as one to repay Gibeah of Benjamin for the wickedness and their moral depravity. As you remember, the the people of of Gibeah had become just like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. And all Israel united to wipe them out, to wipe out the evil. But one cannot cannot help but notice the contrast and the connections between these two scenes. That God has chosen Saul, who happens to be from Gibeah. The place where, in Judges, it represented the depths of moral and spiritual decay in all of Israel. This new king is elected from a place where the grossest sin wasn't only um, committed, but it was all condoned and it was defended by armed conflict. Not only that, but Saul is now attempting to raise an army to defend a city that was severely punished for not fighting against the evil of Gibeah. 
And there's also another connection that I'll introduce now and develop later, is that both Saul and the Levite were acting to rescue the unfaithful. But as we get back to the narrative, the military force then gathers at Bezek. This is almost halfway between uh, Gibeah and Jabesh-Gilead. And they put together a battle plan. And then they send their messengers back to the city. And after informing the people of, of Jabesh of the good news, those people will report to, to Nahash. And their report is ambiguous. And it says that tomorrow will come out to them. And then with the pun intended, it says, then the Ammonite can do whatever seems good in his eyes. And very early that following morning, between 2 and 6 a.m., Saul divides his force into three units and they attack the Ammonites. The Ammonites, of course, were completely unprepared and the Israelite forces fought gallantly until the heat of the day, almost destroying the entire army. Their battle plan was so effective and their victory so complete that no two Ammonites remained together. They fled. The route was complete. And it was through the power of the Spirit of God that the Lord's anointed delivered his brothers from disgrace and from slavery. And as they leave the field of battle, the confidence of the people had to be directed in the right place. And that leads us to the renewal in verses 12 through 15. Saul's triumph was so overwhelmingly successful that all who questioned his leadership just previously are now in danger of being executed for their unfaithfulness. The people turned to Samuel. They said, give us these men who, who criticized Saul. They need to be executed. And Saul's military leadership has been overwhelmingly proven, and he has won the loyalty and the support of all of the tribes. He's a strong, he is the strong military leader that they desired, and the people responded with loyalty. And here Saul could have remained silent as he did earlier when his leadership was questioned. But here, and you'll notice the question was directed to Samuel. But in verse 13, Saul steps in to redirect the people. And Saul refused to kill these people who spoke against him. And look at the reason why. Notice it says this, For the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And at the moment of his confirmation as, yes, he is the military leader we need, Saul points to the one who gave the victory. He acknowledges that it wasn't he who did the saving, but he acknowledges that it was the Lord who did the saving. And then Samuel, of course, seizes upon this moment. He calls everyone to assemble at Gilgal. This was, of course, the, the pattern for the, chapter 10, right? But, and the writer repeats the same phrase three times. Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal so that they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And of course, as you're like thinking back through your history, you might remember, you might not, but you might if, remember Gilgal was on the edge of the Jordan. And Gilgal was the place where as Israel finally made it through their 40 years of wandering, they finally made it into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, the entire nation, and there they camped at Gilgal. And as the Lord was bringing in this, this tribe from out of their wanderings in the desert, bringing them into the promised land, Gilgal was the place where they met. And there at Gilgal, after wandering for 40 years, they celebrated the Passover ceremony. 
And there, as they celebrated the Passover ceremony, the day after, they began to eat of the land. And the manna stopped. Because God's miraculous provision of manna for those 40 years was no longer needed because now he was providing them with a land flowing with milk and honey. He had provided for his people and therefore that was no longer needed for the manna. It was a fitting place to go to renew the kingdom because there, when they entered the land, they renewed the kingdom then. At the place of power where God was celebrated many years before, they returned again to make Saul king. And as you remember, the people's desire, though, to make Saul king uh, was so that Israel could, could have a strong military leader so that they wouldn't have to be under the authority of the Lord. And what started out as a rejection of the rule of the Lord now comes to a rather different conclusion. The Lord's anointed, chosen by God, guided by the law, empowered by his spirit, won a great victory over the enemy. And he delivered God's people from slavery and from shame. And as the people see the goodness of the Lord, the greatness of God on display, they see as he graciously redeems his people and he leads them with the cords of kindness and he leads them with the ropes of love back to Gilgal, they install the king under the authority of the Lord. The theocracy was, was not rejected and the offerings that were made there were peace offerings that were offered to bring restoration and communion, and fellowship. And here in this passage, we see that God will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. But as we think about God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament, One of the most powerful illustrations seen to illustrate how Israel and God interacted over the years was was seen in the life of the prophet Hosea. It's through Hosea that God demonstrates that he will not forsake his people for his name's sake. It's a vivid illustration. The Lord says to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. You can imagine his reaction to this calling. He's like, this seems hard. Can I just go to Nineveh? But he's like, okay, oh, okay. He's given for the reason for what he's called to do. His marriage is to picture the relationship of the Lord to his people. And so Hosea, in his obedience, takes a wife. His unfaithful wife has a child, and the Lord names him God will scatter Some time passes and they have another child. The Lord names her no mercy. Some time passes and a third child, the the Lord names him not my people. You can see where this is going. But throughout all of this, Hosea loves his wife. He provides for her. He pleads with her to remain faithful. He tries to keep her from unfaithfulness with his words, with his actions, with his love. And yet she continues to be unfaithful. Hosea provides food for her, but she brings her food to her lover. Hosea provides money for her and clothes, and she uses these in her unfaithfulness as well. 
Gomer refuses Hosea's pleas and his love and, and his love, and she forsakes him for those of the love of others. And in chapter three, we have this vivid depiction of, of Gomer up on an auction block waiting for someone to come along and purchase her. And the Lord tells Hosea, Go, go to the market and purchase your wife back. So Hosea goes to the market, he searches for his wife. And when he finds her, he pays the price that's demanded of her. And he takes her home, and and he doesn't scold her, he doesn't yell at her, he doesn't treat her harshly, but he takes her home, and he loves her. And he gives her fresh clothes, and he cleans her and cleanses her, and he loves her. But as we think of this illustration of God and his people, it helps us to further understand our passage. Verse 19 of chapter 10 reminds us, it says, but today you, this is God speaking to the people, but today you have rejected God, who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Their unfaithfulness is clearly demonstrated by their rejection of God. They have enjoyed his benefits, but their affections have strayed elsewhere. When the Lord demands that they present himself before him, it seems as if they're about to be punished. But instead of punishing them, he gives them anointed one who's guided by the law, who is empowered by the spirit, who delivers them from the evil around them. And we must remember that the protagonist of this chapter is the Lord. And it's through his powerful and abundant blessings that the anointed one leads the unfaithful people back to faithfulness to their God. And as this um, passage ends with God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And while these scenes end on a positive note, we recognize that they are still pointing to a greater one to come the man Jesus. As we turn our focus towards Jesus, draw your attention to a parallel. And it connects us back all the way to, from Judges, all the way to our passage, all the way to Jesus. I recognize that you're probably tired of turning to Judges 19, But we need to start here to to connect the dots to Jesus. In those days, it says that there was no king in Israel. We would expect the following line to be, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. However, instead of that, we're given the example of a Levite who is doing right in his own eyes. And though Gibeah is compared with Sodom and Gomorrah, The moral depravity of the land is not confined to one city. Every tribe is set apart, even the tribe set apart to serve God, the Levites, is engaged in sinful depravity. Illustrating this sinfulness, the Levite took a second wife from Bethlehem and went back to Ephraim. This new wife is unhappy with her second class status and this young woman is unfaithful. And she returns back to the shelter of her father's home after her infidelity. 
And in verse three, if you look back at verse three, it says, and her husband arose and went after her and spoke kindly in order to bring her back. This husband, this Levite, sets out to win over his unfaithful wife. But he's lacking in in physical resources. He's lacking in physical strength. He's lacking in moral courage. This husband, as he attempts to bring back and win back his wife, he ends up sacrificing her so that he might live. And as we think about this passage, we think about the moral outrage and we cry out for justice. We need something better. We need someone better. We need a better husband. We need a better priest. We need a better king. And this morning we saw that the Lord's anointed set out to rescue Jabesh Gilead. And in the process, this reveals God's goodness to the unfaithful Israel causing them to repent and seek reconciliation. Saul's lack of resources was filled up through the Spirit of God, and his work still points to the need of a greater Savior, a greater King. And though we have seen the goodness of God on display, we recognize we need something more. We need someone better. But as we look forward to Jesus, we see that his work is greater. He came to a world where all mankind stands guilty before the creator God. God, the creator, is worthy of all our worship, and he will punish sin. And as each person is born into this world, they inherit a sin nature. And because we're born with this in nature, we are born out of fellowship with God. We're actually enemies of God. And we deserve a just punishment. But Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, he lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him. And he rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. And God calls everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ in order to be saved from his wrath. And the question is, will you bow your knee? Will you repent and turn back to Jesus? And by way of encouragement this morning, I want to remind you of and give you one last picture of Christ. And that is Christ as the faithful bridegroom. As we think about what that means, Martin Luther stated it this way, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but it creates that which is pleasing to it. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life. Paul describes this by further reminding us that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. This is not a passive work on behalf of Christ. 
We're reminded that Christ loved the church and that he gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify her, he might cleanse her, he might present the church to himself without any spot, without any wrinkle, that she might be pure, that she might be blameless. Jesus did not find a bride worthy of all his love. His actions for the church actually imply what she was like before he found her. Filthy, unclean, impure, faithless, dressed in dirty rags, without home, without hope. Just like Gomer on the auction block. Luther reminds us that God loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings, in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. As Christ redeems his bride, there's an incredible incredible transfer that happens. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes our sin. And we take his righteousness. All our debts and sins are, are cast and transferred to him. And the incredible riches of Christ are transferred to us. And as we are dressed in his righteousness, we are slowly, day by day, being renewed into the image of our creator. As Jesus Christ himself nourishes and cherishes his bride as he intercedes on her behalf, at the right hand of the Father. Peter describes this incredible transformation with the language of Hosea. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice the connection to Hosea here. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The goodness of God is displayed through his anointed one, bringing about repentance and reconciliation. Well, let me leave you with one last picture from Martin Luther. He says this, quote, Who can even begin to appreciate this royal marriage? Who can comprehend the riches of this glorious grace? Here, this upstanding bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, disloyal prostitute, redeems her from all evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. For now, it is impossible for her sins to destroy her because they have been laid upon Christ and devoured by him. In Christ, her bridegroom, she has her righteousness, which she can enjoy as her very 
own property. And with confidence, she can set this righteousness over and against all of her sins and in opposition to death and hell can say, sure, I have sinned, but my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. And all that is his is mine. And all mind is his. As it says in the Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine and I am his. End quote. Beloved, this morning may you through the power of the bridegroom himself endure with faithful expectant joy until that great and glorious wedding day. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your wonderful truths. We ask that you will continue to press them into our hearts and into our minds. We ask that you will continue to, through your spirit, work in us. Make us into the image of your Son, that we might bring glory to him in your name. Amen.